I'd encourage you to have a, have a Bible open in front of you. So if you've brought one with you, uh, then please do get it out. Uh, if you haven't got one with you, there should be plenty in the seats around you. Uh, and we're going to be reading from uh, the first letter of Peter together. And we're going to be uh, jumping around a little bit. So... a bit. It's on page 1226 and 27 if you haven't already got it in your church Bibles. I will read verses 1 to 5 and 13 to 16 and then move on. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. We move to verse four in the next chapter. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness 
into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Pauline. So uh, as we uh, reflect on these words, let's pray together. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and move among us. Come and stir our hearts. And as we reflect on, on these words that we've just heard together this morning, we pray, speak to us and shape us. Mold us and make us into your people in the world. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, today uh, we are starting a, a new series of sermons leading up to Lent, in which we're calling Life in Exile. Now, for, for many years, uh, Christians in this country have enjoyed a, a high level of cultural ascendancy. But the statistics show that only about 5% of the UK population actually has any regular contact with the church today. And not only that, there's an increasing level of suspicion, even hostility to, to biblical Christianity that we can see in the culture at large. Uh, many commentators have observed that Christians are experiencing something that's quite similar to exile. Now, we might not be kind of physically relocated like the exiles in the Old Testament and like exiles in many places around the world today, but there is an increasing sense of being out of step, a sense of living in an environment that doesn't share the same beliefs, the same values. And so it raises this challenge for us of how do we seek to faithfully follow Jesus when we feel like we're foreigners in a strange land. And so the purpose of the, these, uh, the, the, these next few weeks as we look at life in exile is to ask the critical question, how can we live as faithful followers of Jesus in this current moment in our culture. And the really rather wonderful thing is that as we turn to the Bible, we see that we're not, we're not alone in this experience. In fact, it's been a common theme for God's people down through the ages and even around the world to this day. Now, you might actually say that we have been the odd ones out for not feeling out of step with the world around us for so long. Uh, and so the question is, what lessons can we learn from the experiences of God's people in the Bible which might inform and shape our lives as the people of God here and now? And in particular over these weeks, I want to introduce you to the idea of the church being a creative minority. And I know that that probably sounds like a, a strange uh, word jumble. But what that basically means is being a people who are in the world but not of the world. A people who are deeply and uncompromisingly rooted in their identity as God's people, grounded in God's word, 
while at the same time maintaining strong links with the outside world for its good, for its blessing. And the idea of that has its roots in Jeremiah chapter 29, where God's people uh, have gone into exile in Babylon. But then God, through the prophet Jeremiah, tells those exiled people to seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which they've been sent. And to do that while remaining true to their identity as the people of God in a land filled with many other gods, with many other idols. And so being a creative minority means loving Jesus, learning Jesus, in order to live Jesus for the renewal of the world. And that, I guess the, the emphasis is on the last of those in these next few weeks. And so what we're talking about this morning is really about Christian identity and Christian calling. Who we are and why we're here. And the first couple of chapters of 1 Peter are absolutely brilliant for that. So I've just selected a few key verses for us to focus on, Um, though I would, of course, encourage you to go away and meditate on the whole thing. It doesn't take long to read. Um, It'll take you about uh, kind of 10 minutes, 15 minutes to read the whole whole letter. Uh, Well worth it. But the thing that I'm especially praying that the Holy Spirit impresses upon us this morning is this, that living well in exile means being deeply rooted in who we are in Jesus. It means knowing who we are as God's people. If we're to flourish as God's people, we need to really be confident in who we are as God's people. And that requires a deep listening to him. Uh, So our our, our youngest child, Maddie, uh, is involved in one of the local beaver colonies. And at the end of every session, I'm sure if other, other kids or um, if you've got kids or grandkids who are involved, you might know there's like a little chant that they do at the end. And it goes like this, one, two, three, who are we? We are beavers, can't you see? B-E-A-V-E-R-S, beavers. And, and when you hear it week after week, it's surprisingly catchy and gets in your head. <laughs> uh, but it made me think... Who are we? Who are we as Christians? And not only who are we, but can people see who we are by the way that we live our lives? And so all I want to do this morning then is point out uh, the different answers Peter gives to the, the, the first question of who we are. And there are, there, there are eight of those. I'll try and go through them quickly. And then there are three different answers he gives to the second question of why we're here. Uh, so this, we're going to try and cover quite a lot of ground in a short amount of time. So just going to be kind of going through uh, quite quickly. So who are we, first of all? Well, look with me just at the, at the, start, of the, the start of the letter, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. 
Now, there's, uh, there's lots that we could talk about here. Uh, one of the, the, the things I love about it is just the way you see Father, Spirit, and Son all woven in there together. But what I want to draw your attention to is just that word right uh, in the beginning uh, in verse 1. Exiles. Exiles. Later on in, in chapter 2, verse 11, uh, so just the verse after uh, ours when we finished, uh, Peter writes, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. And so the point is this, that to be a Christian is to be a resident alien in the world. The theologians Stanley Hauerwas and Will Willimon write this. They say a colony is a beachhead, an outpost, an island of one culture in the middle of another, a place where the values of home are reiterated and passed on to the young, a place where the distinctive language and lifestyle of the resident aliens are lovingly nurtured and reinforced. The church is a colony, an island of one culture in the middle of another. In baptism, our citizenship is transferred from one dominion to another, and we become, in whatever culture we find ourselves, resident aliens. So God's call, we are elect exiles, we are called exiles, locates us in a different story, in a different kingdom. Our first citizenship isn't British or American or French, or Chinese, or uh, South African. Our first citizenship is with Christ in heaven. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. And so what difference does it make? Well, it means that Christians cannot be fully at home in a God-denying world. As the Apostle John writes, anyone, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. As Christians, we have a different king, a different constitution, and different desires. First, we bow the knee to Jesus alone. He is our king. We owe our ultimate allegiance to him. He is the supreme authority that we follow in life and death. And second is, uh, subjects of King Jesus, we follow his commands. God's kingdom operates on different rules to those of the world. You know, one of the things that Jesus says to his disciples as they're jockeying for the best places around the cabinet table in his kingdom is, not so with you. There's a different rule for my followers. His way is loving service. And third, it means living with a different MO. We seek holiness why? Because as we heard in verse 16 of chapter 1, because God is holy, there are different desires. Second, who are we? We are living stones. A little later on, Peter describes Christians in these verses as living stones. Now, I'm sure we all know this, but the Bible never talks about church as a building. Or at least, not a building that's made out of stones. You 
are the church. The ones sitting in these seats, you are the church. Uh, Now, we've got lots of wonderful church buildings with lots of great history about them. But verse 5 says, we are a spiritual house built of living stones. And the danger is that we think that the church is a building, and it isn't. The building houses the church, but the building isn't the church. The church is the people of God. And that's what the the Greek word ecclesia, which is uh, where we get our word church from, that's what it means. It means those who have been called out. In the words of verse 4, those who have been chosen by God. That's what church is. You are the church. You are the place where heaven and earth meet. If there's anything special about this building, it's because you're here. You are the church. But then the theological move that Peter makes is simply astonishing. So first in verse 4, he calls Jesus the living stone. And then he says in verse 5, that we also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. In other words, he's saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple, i.e. the place where heaven and earth come together. And you know, Jesus says himself in John 2, uh, he says that of his own body, he says, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and I'll raise it up again in three days. But then the amazing thing that Peter does off the back of that is that he says, we also are living stones because Jesus lives in us. Who are we? We are portable houses of the holy. We are the presence of Jesus. You are the presence of Jesus in your home, in your workplace, in your sports clubs, wherever you might be, you are the presence of Jesus in that place. Because the Spirit of God lives in you. Third, who are we? We are believers. The second way that Peter describes who we are as Christians is as believers. So, uh, verse 7. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. This probably seems so obvious that you're wondering why on earth I bother mentioning it. Well, because what makes Christians Christians isn't going to church. It isn't going to a service on a Sunday. There are lots of churchgoers, and they're not necessarily all Christians. See, what makes a Christian a Christian is faith, is belief. And not just faith that God exists, because as James says in his letter, even the demons believe that God exists, and they shudder too. No, the the faith that he's talking about is much richer than that. Notice what he says. Now to you who believe, this stone, i.e. Jesus, is precious. So the faith that we're talking about is faith in the preciousness of Jesus. That's what makes Christian faith Christian. 
Not just that Jesus exists, but that he's precious. And just so we get the year started in the right way, as Dallas Willard says, we don't believe something merely by saying we believe it, or even when we believe that we believe it. We believe something when we act as if it were true. And so what that means is that being a Christian is more than kind of ticking off things that we we say that we believe about God. Do we believe that Jesus died for us? Yes. Do we believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. Now, I'm not knocking those things at all. Those things are important. They're vital. What I'm saying is that there's a difference between just believing something to be true and acting like that thing is precious to you. What a... To be a believer means building your life upon Jesus, living as if those things that we say are true about him are true. It means living as if Jesus is precious to you, more precious than money, possessions. It means putting Jesus first above everything else. Fourth, who are we? We are a chosen people. Verse 9. We need to hear this. The basis of our identity as the people of God isn't that you chose God. It's that he chose you. Uh, Now, as a a kid in school, uh, I remember that awkward moment at lunchtime where kind of the the boys would go out and play football uh, and there would kind of be that time where you kind of pick the teams. Now, I think it's probably fair to say, and Chris can, he's already laughing uh, uh, because he knows what I'm going to say. I think it's probably fair to say that I have more enthusiasm than skill. And so I was always one of the ones... They got picked right at the very last. You know, they would look around, see all the, all, all the skillful kids, pick those first. Then they would say, there's a dustbin over there, we'll have you. And then right at the end, when they exhausted all the rocks and other inanimate objects, they would pick me. But this verse says, I'm chosen. You are chosen. You are wanted. Isn't that incredible? It's certainly not because of what I can offer God, as if any any of us could enrich God anyway. I didn't earn it. We can just stand in awe of it and try and live a life worthy of it. We are chosen. Next, Peter says we are a royal priesthood. We, these words are the words, uh, echo the words that God spoke, uh, told Moses to speak to the people at the, the foot of uh, Mount Sinai. Uh, Exodus verse, uh, chapter 19 verse 6 says, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so we're chosen for a purpose. Our chosenness comes with a calling. We are royal because we belong to the King of Kings, and because we're charged with enacting God's reign wherever we are. And we're a priesthood because we're to live the whole of our lives in response to the reality of God. And in doing so, to to be a channel of his blessings to others. 
we have both the, the, the privilege of immediate access to God and the privilege of ministering the presence of God to other people. That's what it means to be a priest. Sixth, we as the church are a holy nation. We are holy because we've been set apart for God in the world to remind the world that it belongs to God. And we're a nation because our head of state isn't any earthly government or leader. It isn't the president of the United States. It isn't the king of England. It's King Jesus. And we're saints. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. As Peter says in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. We are whose we are. And whose are we? We're God's. God's holiness, his transcendent otherness, his one-of-a-kindness. That's what holiness means. And we exist for him. And so sin for Christians isn't just a kind of moral failure. It's a fundamental mistake about who we are and whose we are. Because we are holy. Seventh, we are God's special possession. And again, he's channeling uh, Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai. And he's driving home the previous point. We're not our own. Why do you think that Jesus said that if anyone wants to follow him, they must first deny themselves? Because the call to follow Christ as Lord means we have to give up our own lordship. George Muller, who was a a wonderful lover of orphans, uh, who lived by faith and powered his ministry through prayer, says this, of the the secret of his effectiveness. He says, there was a day when I died, utterly died. I died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, taste, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame, even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I've studied only to show myself approved of God. He knew that he was God's special possession. Eighth, verse 10. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this verse makes me want to uh, come up with a new English word, kind of using mercy as a verb. We have been mercied. We have been We have experienced God's mercy to us, his kindness, his undeserved love. Being God's people means knowing ourselves to be forgiven sinners. It means, in the words of that beautiful old hymn, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Our Christian identity is born out of God's heart for us. That's who you are if you're a Christian. You are the recipient of mercy. So let's move on. Why are we here? If we're living stones, believers, a chosen people, a royal priest of the holy nation, God's special possession, recipients of God's mercy, what are we here for? 
First, we're here to offer spiritual sacrifices. Verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're here to offer spiritual sacrifices. Well, what on earth does that mean? Well, he's saying in the context of uh, saying this in the context of talking about the church as living stones, and perhaps the closest equivalent is uh, is in Romans 12, where people uh, where Paul exhorts us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. What Peter is saying is, God no longer lives in a temple in Jerusalem but in the spiritual house that's being built up all over the world through people like you. Offer yourself as a brick in the wall. Uh, Walter Lewis Wilson was uh, an American doctor born towards the end of the 19th century. He was a faithful Christian who often hosted missionaries at his house uh, when they visited his church. And one time a visiting missionary from France Uh, asked him quite directly, who is the Holy Spirit to you? He answered uh, very doctrinally, theologically correct. He said, you know, he's the third person of the Trinity and so on. Uh, But his guest wasn't satisfied with the answer. And he said, no, you you haven't answered my question. I asked, who is the Holy Spirit to you? And Wilson admitted, he's nothing to me. I have no contact with him and could get along without him. Well, the next year, uh, he heard a sermon on Romans 12 with this challenge. God gives you the indescribable honor of presenting your bodies to the Holy Spirit to be his dwelling place on earth. And then the penny dropped And Wilson rushed home and fell on his face before God, and he prayed, My Lord, I've treated you like a servant. When I wanted you, I called for you. Now I give you this body from my head to my feet. I give you my hands, my limbs, my eyes and lips, my brain. You may send this body to Africa or lay it on a bed with cancer. It is your body from this moment on. And the very next day, Wilson was working in his office when someone came uh, in to try and sell him some advertising, and he ended up bringing them to Christ. He went on to start a church plant, a mission organization, a Bible college. The spiritual sacrifices of which Peter is speaking are those spirit-inspired actions that flow from an attitude of, I'm yours. I'm here as a temple, as a house for the Holy Spirit. The second reason we're here as Christians is in verse 9. We are who we are as God's people, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. The reason we're here is to tell anyone and everyone how amazing God is. Uh, I have a a book um, by the Christian comedian Milton Jones at home um, called 10 Second Sermons. And I know, yes, you're thinking, I wish he were here now. Um, 
But he says this of our evangelistic task. He says, it's easier to publicize a restaurant if you eat there regularly. And it's impossible to remain enthusiastic if you're just passing on other people's recommendations. And so the way that you and I are to tell of how great our God is, is by eating at the restaurant of God regularly. When we know ourselves as a spiritual house inhabited by God's Spirit, as we cherish the preciousness of Jesus, then this kind of declaring the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light is a lot easier. It's no longer a chore, it's a delight. Can you think of a higher privilege than being able to tell others what God has made out of you? What he's done with your life. Our job is, first of all, to know God and then to make him known to others. Third, finally, and it's it's suggested in that previous tea, but we are to give embodied witness to the power of a transformed life. And I know that sounds like jargon, so bear with me. Verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What he's saying is that we're here as living, breathing, walking, talking examples of the kind of difference that Jesus can make to a human life. People should be looking at us and say, Jesus can do that to people? You are in your home, your office, your school, wherever else you are, to show them that you're a new person in Christ. Your everyday, ordinary life is to be a mirror to the world, showing who God is, what God has done, and also what God can do for them. And Peter fleshes this out a little bit more in verse 11. He urges us to live as foreigners and exiles, not to be chameleon Christians who blend in so well that they're virtually indistinguishable from everyone else. He's not urging us to be weird for the sake of being weird, but for the sake of faithfulness to Jesus. He's saying that there's a war going on for our souls, and we need to wise up to the subtle ways in which our disordered desires are played and become, become normal in a sinful society. We're to live differently because of Jesus. Now, I said at the start that I, I wanted to put before us Peter's vision for who we are and why we're here. First, I just want to draw your attention as we draw towards an end to something that's really, really important. It's, uh, our, and it's this, our identity as Christians isn't something that we have to strive for. It's already yours. So look with me, if you've got your Bible open, look with me again at verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You are all of these things. Not you can be, Not you will be, if X, Y, and Z. You are. Present tense at this very moment in time. If you are a born-again follower of Jesus, you are already all of these things. 
They are your spiritual inheritance. One for you through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. You don't have to earn them. They're yours. And what that means is that the Christian life is about becoming who we are already are in Christ. Think of it this way. Christ has given us the keys to a house and made the title deed over to us. Your job isn't to buy the house. He's already done that. Your job is to live in the house, to make it your own, to make it home. You are already living stones. You are already believers. You are already a chosen people. You are already a royal priesthood. You are already a holy nation. You are already God's special possession. You are already the recipients of God's mercy. Our task isn't to grab hold of those things for ourselves, but to grow into them. More and more every day, every year, as the Holy Spirit does his long, patient, gradual work within us. So the final question is how? How do we become more fully who we are in Christ? How do we take hold of that eternal life for which Christ took hold of us? And Peter's answer is gloriously simple. It's so simple we probably miss it. It's right there at the beginning of verse 4. Five words. As you come to him. You want to know how you become who you already are in Christ? You come to him. And you keep coming to him. And you come to him again. And again. And again. And I know this isn't, doesn't sound very profound, but it really is the essence of Christian living. Hour by hour, day by day, week by week, year by year, decade by decade, we come to him. We fix our eyes on him. We present ourselves to him. And so, as Peter did in his letter, so today I just want to urge all of us to live as foreigners and exiles here on earth. I want to urge us to become who we already are in Christ. I want to urge us to reject a superficial Christianity and to plunge the depth of our Christian identity and calling. I want to urge us to pursue the holiness that is characteristic of God. Above all, I want to urge us to come to Jesus and to keep on coming to Jesus again and again and again in daily prayer, in meditating on God's word, in fellowship with other believers, in gathered worship with God's people. And as you wake up each new morning, to offer yourself afresh to his will, to his work in the world. Lord Jesus, here I am. I'm here for you. And we can start that today. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are here for you. We are yours. 
And we want to make ourselves fully available to you and to your purposes for us. And so, Lord, we, we, we pray that we'd become more truly who we already are in you. Living stones, believers, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, the recipients of your mercy. And through you, we pray that we would offer spiritual sacrifices. We pray that we would proclaim your praise. And we pray that we would reflect in our lives the transformation that you're working in our hearts. Amen.